Good deal. Sure appreciate you all coming um, this afternoon. I know there's other things you, you could be doing. I don't think there's a better investment in uh, this just incredible uh, on topic of, of justification. I know this week all four of our hearts have been warmed by uh, thinking about it. And so I think this is going to be um, a, a feast of just really, really good news. I knew Papa was going to be a fan. Martin Luther showed up in the second um, paragraph, childhood friend, Martin Luther. Didn't you call him Marty? Is that what you called him? I did. Marty and Papa. Marty. But um, Papa, would you, because this has been such a, um, uh, something that you've stressed for the decade I've known you, I think. Um, could you start us in Galatians uh, 2, 16 to 21, just for starters, there's so many numerous passages we could start on justification. But if you would start us with that, and especially when you're in verse 16, look at how, how can you say something more clear in one verse, as he stresses here, that justification is by faith alone. So if you would start us on that, Papa, and pray for us, we'll, we'll get the feast on the way. The word of the Lord, um, Galatians uh, Two, two sixteen through 20. Uh, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to Christ. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Father, I uh, come before you on behalf of uh, everyone in this room to seek your spirit to guide us through these many texts which we'll present today. All of this is from your word. Uh, this is one of the heaviest subjects actually in, in Christendom. And since we're talking about salvation and the order of salvation, this justification by faith is uh, the doctrine on which the church falls or stands. And so thank you for giving us the opportunity to uh, present your word this afternoon and bless us now and guide us in our teaching and be with each of us through your spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Papa, you mentioned this week that... Uh, you felt like this could be the biggest chapter um, to, to camp on. Why is it so important? Why is it so important that we get this right? 
You know, I was looking at, thank you, Jerry, for, for that question. Um, I, I was looking at the order of salvation back on page 281, and um, there are a lot of terms there. Justification is number five. We've covered some of the others already. Um, but justification reflects our right standing before God. So this, it's a, it's a decree from God, a forensic declaration that we're justified by faith. Um, so that raises the question, you know, how much faith? Uh, so we're participating. No, no. That faith is even a gift, it says in Ephesians. So once again, God's at work to, to justify, justify us, make us right. We're unholy, unrighteous people, and yet God has decreed that we are righteous through Christ. We've got the great exchange at work here. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might have the righteousness. Christ in him. So again, and as I was telling Mark a little while ago, most of the world does not accept this. Even, I'm not talking about Catholicism, uh, there, there, there are works, theologies everywhere. Almost everyone presents some formula, some method of achieving righteousness with God. So this is, this is pretty sound. And this was the basis 500 years ago of the Protestant Reformation. And bless his heart, R.C. Sproul would say we're still fighting that war. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's why I think. So clear, so clear in Scripture, isn't it? There it is, is no doubt. You know, that's a great point, Jerry, because I don't think there's another term that's so clearly defined in Scripture. It's all through the Psalms, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. You mentioned Psalm 143, the righteousness of God. What is the passage in Job? How can I, how can I be right with God? That is man's age-old question. Because mm -hmm. we, we know we're not. Mm -hmm. And justification by faith, through grace, and through Christ answers that question. Yeah, Greg, why is it even... Why do we fight it? Or why is it even debatable when it's so clear in Scripture? What makes it hard for us to, to acknowledge this? I think what makes it hard for us to acknowledge is our inborn pride, which wants to boast in what we can do. Like, we, we realize we want to give glory to God, but we want to keep some of the credit for ourselves so we can pat ourselves on the back and say, you know, boy, good job, way to go. Mm -hmm. And this doctrine, I mean, there's other, you know, the other doctrines we've looked at, sovereignty of God, election, all of that, that cuts against our pride. Um, justification might do it more incisively, more precisely, because it says the very thing by which we are accepted in God's sight is completely separate and outside of us. Yeah. We want to lay claim to some kind of righteousness, some kind of right thing that we've done. Even if it's really small, you know, God did his 99.9999%, but we got that 0 0.00001 that we can say, yep, that's what did it. And justification says 100% of the righteousness that God requires is what he has provided outside of us in Christ. 
Um, and so it completely bankrupts us from any boasting as to why we stand before God accepted. Right, isn't that good? That has got to be the answer. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's Romans 3.20. And that sums up the depravity of man passage in Romans from verse 118 to verse 320 is summed up, I think, in that one verse, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, it doesn't come with justification, forgiveness of sin. Mark? Yeah, we're all familiar with the Good Samaritan parable. It's known worldwide. You don't have to be Christian to know about the Good Samaritan. Uh, it's interesting how, and you don't, you don't have to turn there right now just, uh, just to kind of keep it in one place, but l listen to the words as, as before that parable is told. Behold, a lawyer, this is one of the Pharisees types, stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what sh uh, shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, do you hear how he's thinking? I got to do some righteous deeds to get eternal life. I got to earn this thing. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Interesting. Jesus points him to the law for the beginning of the answer. And he answered correctly, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, the reason I smile is because who's done that for five minutes of their lives? Yeah. This guy gives the textbook definition. How do you stand right before God? You love him perfectly with all your mind, all your thoughts, all your imagination, all your ambition, all your desires, all your heart, all your strength, every action, every intent, everything you do, everything you say, 100% to the glory of God. And the lawyer's just smiling at Jesus. Yeah, like I've been doing this my whole life. And Jesus is going, okay. And so then Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So if you can do that, you can live. And then, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so what he's saying is, he's actually taking the law of God and watering it down. Because that's the only way you can keep it, right? You've got to take the law of God and say, well, it doesn't mean love everybody. It just means love your neighbor. And that just means sort of love the people you like. Love the people around you who look like you, act like you, think like you, talk like you. Th those people, and we don't even love them very well, right? But if I can just sort of love my, my neighbor, like maybe my Jewish neighbor uh, as, my, as myself, okay, then I'm doing okay. And Jesus says, well, what, what about a Samaritan neighbor? How would you love a Samaritan? Well, I wouldn't love a Samaritan. That's not even part of the covenant people of God. I would not treat them well at all. Well, let me tell you a story. And then suddenly he has a Samaritan showing kindness to a Jew who's been beat up on the Jericho Road while two Jewish people, a Levite and a priest, pass by and don't help their, their fellow uh, Jew. Uh, and so Jesus says, okay, that, that right there is a model of actually loving your neighbors. So Jesus tells that story really to flatten everybody to say, I am not measuring up to loving my neighbor as I should. I'm not measuring up to what I need. And only the gospel can justify me, save me, and then help me begin little by little to actually live like the Good Samaritan, you know, be, actually begin to imitate those acts of love. But that, it's interesting, that parable often is lost on the context of what's mm -hmm. being said. But it's about, it's about how would I be right, how do I inherit eternal life? That, that is really good. Because it should have been a terrifying answer. When the guy said that, he should have thought to himself, like we all should, like, oh no, I am in bad trouble if that's what it takes. And, uh, but yet he, he felt pretty good about it. Papa? What about the rich young ruler? That's another example. Exactly. Yeah, he came with his wanting to be right, wanting to, and, and, and Jesus told him to keep the commandments, basically. He said, oh, I've done all those since. <laughs> yeah. Since by you. And so then he tells him to go and sell all that he has because he knew what was in his heart. Well, and that is the beauty of Romans, don't you think, is that it starts with a, the depravity that yes. convincing us of, of how much we are not justified on our own. 
how much we can't do it through good works. And then it launches into chapters four and five, which is completely about justification. Yeah, just so good. Would you, would you, just Jerry, right there, would y'all agree? I, I think that the, the biggest reason people don't accept justification by faith is because they don't think they need it. That's right. I, I think the number one lie connected here is that I'm basically good. That's what Jesus is dealing with. That's what most people you know outside these walls. That's what most people believe. And so why, I, why would you make such a big deal about this idea that you're righteous in Christ? I'm pretty good on my own, thank you very much. I've never, you know, I've never really hurt anybody too badly. I'm a decent, honest person. I've never been in trouble with the law in my life. I, I, I try to, I pay my taxes. I do what I'm supposed to do. Why do I need some sort of righteousness to make me right. I'm, I'm perfectly good on my own. And I, I think that that's why the law, like Romans will do, bring the law in to show us how much our need is. And then justification by faith is the greatest news you've ever heard, oh, yeah. but it's only when you realize that you're dying in your sin. It, it's like L Luther prized this doctrine because he was tortured by the, the law of God for years as a, as a, as a monk uh, in, the, in the monastery, realizing that he did not measure up to God's law. And it tortured him. He, just, he said sometimes he felt like he even hated God because he felt so condemned by God. And so he struggled with this horrific inward battle, knowing he could not be good enough, confessing sins hours a day, but never feeling like he was cleared. And then when the doctrine of justification became clear in his Greek New Testament, suddenly said the, the doors of paradise opened in front of me and I walked through. Yeah. Uh, it, it was life transforming for a man who felt cursed and then saved. I am convinced you're right on that. Could you tell us about when you were doing uh, the great exchange that people were always answering? The general answer would be what? Tell us how, how that worked because it, that's fascinating. If, you have, if you're in Romans by any chance, Romans 3, I, I just remember talking to this guy. Uh, this is back when uh, John Deans, a, a friend of ours, was. he still does a lot of this on-campus evangelism. And uh, a few of us were involved with that a number of years ago. This is probably going on eight or nine years ago at this point. But I remember on one of these little on-campus, you know, you know, Tate Plaza, you know, right next to the bridge, right next to the, the stadium, you know, the little Tate Plaza near the bookstore. So Tate Plaza used to be one of the free speech zones on UGA's campus. I think, I think it's changed some, but it used to be a free speech zone so we could do evangelism there without getting in trouble. And I remember walking up to this kid. His name, I'm virtually certain, was Zach. Uh, and and I, I, not Zach Petty or any other Zach at our church, but I, I walked up to this bus stop and this kid had like, uh, he had earbuds in and you, you know you want someone to come up and bother you that you don't know while you're listening to music. That's what you want. So I walked up to him, I kind of said, excuse me, and I realized he had earbuds. I'm like, great. And then he stopped for a second. He took out his earbuds. He said, he said what, what's, what's up? I said, hey, my name is Mark. Can I ask you a few questions? Long story short, he said, yes. So we started talking through things and I said, are you, what, do you have a religious background? And I think his parents were split with different, one parent was like, and if I'm getting this guy right, I, I, get, I get these stories confused, but it may have been like this weird story where his mom was like uh, Jewish and his dad was Southern Baptist or one of these weird, like how does that work? Anyways, then I said, well, you're, what are you? And he said, well, I'm an agnostic. I said, okay, okay fair enough. I said, uh, I know you're not a Christian, but what, what would you say, having grown up a little bit in the church in his early years, what would you say the central message of Christianity is? And uh, this part I remember crystal clear because he said, well, the Ten Commandments. I said, yes. He said, well, you got to keep, if you keep the Ten Commandments pretty, pretty much well, you do that the right thing, then God lets you into heaven. Like that's, that's what I think Christianity is. And this kid went to church in early years of his life and now has left Christianity, which it makes me wonder, what did you really leave if that's what you thought it was, you know? So I, I said to him, I said, I had, my, I had a different Bible at the time. I flipped to Romans 3 and I actually got him to read verse 19 and 20 out loud. Verse 19, he was, 20 and 19, he was amazed. So 319, now we know that whatever the law says, that includes the Ten Commandments. It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, 
No human being will be justified in his, God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And he literally was like, wait, what? Like, I remember him having genuine perplexity about that being in the Bible. I said, yeah, what, that means the law was not given to save us. The law was given to show us we can't be saved by our actions. By works of the law, how many people will be saved? Zero people. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no flesh, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So I, I then presented the gospel, and I'll tell you, I had his full attention at that point. When I, when I, I don't think he became a Christian, at least not in that moment he didn't become a Christian, but I had his full attention because he was hearing something brand new, at least to him. Now, maybe he heard the gospel as a kid and he just, he just didn't register, but as far as he knew, obedience was how you're saved. And then when, when I explained this passage, I went for, further into the text about uh, salvation by faith in verse 23 and 24. Uh, he, he was very much uh, intrigued by that message. Yeah, I, and I think that's maybe more the rule than the exception there. Um, justification on page 316, a great definition, is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, number one, Thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. That already is just overwhelmingly great news. But look at number two. Also declares us to be righteous in his sight. Greg, would you walk us through that definition a little bit? Because there's, I mean, and again, it's a month worth. But tell us just some key elements of that. Uh, sure. Uh, first thing I want to do is mention you know, Grudem lists two things, the forgiveness of sins and a declaration of righteousness. For many of us, the emphasis is, has usually been just the forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he wipes our sins away. We're completely forgiven. But if we actually think about what that does, that only gets us to a state of innocence. God doesn't accept innocent people. God accepts righteous people. If we're going to be accepted in the sight of God, we've got to be righteous in God's sight. And so this second half of the definition is actually very significant when God declares us to be righteous. Um, it gets back to uh, Luther's thing about the righteousness of God too because Luther had this understanding that the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel was God's, you know, his response to sin, God's anger, his wrath against sin. That's God displaying his righteousness. And Luther would say, that's not good news. That's terrifying. Mm -hmm. um, but Luther's breakthrough came when he realized it's not the God expressing his wrath. It's God providing what we don't have. Yes. The righteousness that God requires is the righteousness that God gives. Um, and you just stay here in Romans 3. You actually see that come out. You know, verse 20 again, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So when we look at the law, we see the need for righteousness. But if we're honest, we'll realize we can never attain it. Verse 21 starts the good news. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, and here's the key, apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so when we think of the righteousness of God, righteousness refers to doing what is right, okay? Um, Jesus is the only human being who always did what was right in God's sight. He's the only one who ever did it. He came into this world without sin, so he had no sin nature. He had no stain of sin. And then in all his behavior and conduct and in his attitudes, he was completely in the right all the time. He never had one cross thought. 
Anytime you see Jesus rebuking disciples or angry, we have to understand it was not sinful. Everything he did was righteous. It was right in God's sight. And that is what God actually requires of us. As his image bearers, to bear the image of God is to display God, meaning we pursue what's right in all that we do and all that we say so that we can show what God's like. And if we don't do that, then we are unrighteous. And so we owe that to God just by the fact that we exist. And none of us have given it to God. None of us can. Jesus is the only one who did. And here's the thing. He didn't just, because he was human, he can provide righteousness for humanity. But because he was also God, he can guarantee righteousness to everyone who believes. Mm. So because his, you know, we get back to um, the, the hypostatic union, that fun, fun term we talked about probably a long time ago. You know, Jesus is both truly God and truly man. In order for him to save us, you have to keep both of those in view. He couldn't save us, um, truly save us as just God because we need someone, uh, we need as humans, we need the penalty for sin to be paid in human flesh and the requirement of righteousness to be met in human flesh. So he has to be truly man, but because his humanity is completely connected to his, his being God, it's of infinite value what he does for us. Meaning it's as one, you know, one person might could do it for another person and that's it. Because Jesus is both God and man, he can do it for all of us, everyone who believes. And so every act of righteousness of doing right before God, Jesus did that for us. And that's why it says it's revealed apart from the law because what does the law do? The law just continually shows us how sinful we are and how far short we fall. Let's keep reading in Romans 3. The righteousness of God is verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, Jew or Greek, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here's the key, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so justification, this right standing that God gives us, this declaration that we are in the right comes through Jesus and in no other way. That's why, you know, we go back to the Reformation. You've heard the five solas, grace alone, faith alone. You know, a lot of times we kind of go broadly, more broadly out and say, you know, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We need to narrow that down and say, no, actually, if we're going to be truer to the Reformation and truer to Scripture, we're made right with God. We're declared righteous with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, we cannot have any mixture of our works, of our obedience, of our own righteousness in there, because if we do, we have just tainted everything and we have no hope. What humility and what thankfulness in that it's a gift, Papa. Just Jerry, you mentioned, I don't think there's a, a term that's better defined in scripture than justification, yeah. as we're talking about right now. And, and see, this is what this is what Luther found. He, he was captive to this penitential system that they had in the church at that time. And that's all he knew. And he was working as hard as he could, but he knew that he wasn't righteous. And fortunately, his uh, mentor, Johann von Staupitz, uh, recognized his intelligence, number one, and his ability, and he directed him towards the scriptures. Number one, Psalms. Number two, Romans. Jerry, you'd like that. Number three, Galatians. And in, it was in the study of those three that Luther, the scales fell from Luther's eyes. So it's in the word that he discovered 
the truth of justification. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. And right in Romans 1, uh, 16 and 17 is what finally got him. Well, that's what actually got him, yes. Yeah. But, but as he uh, ventured on into teaching Romans, right. it just spelled it out. Yeah, all, everywhere. The, and, and you know, 32, what you said, Pop, is interesting because 132 in Romans says, though they knew, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, and they give approval to those who practice them. So everybody deep down really knows. Oh, yeah. They really do know that they're not right in God's eyes. They really do. Now, they may not admit it, but they really do know that. And here, this is where this is the great news. But this is also why we have got to present the bad news. We've got to present that well so that people really understand how deep a trouble they're in all of us. And uh, what a great gift this is. And, and that's when the news becomes really good. Mark mentioned the great exchange. I mean, one of the, and he knows these stats, but, uh, you know, most of the people that we talk to or have talked to on campus say they're going to heaven because they're a good person. Mm -hmm. And then you, then you try to define good and you throw out a few commandments and you find, well... <laughs> Because don't they rate it one to ten and usually say they're six or seven? Uh, or sure. Eight well, or... the average, I think, is about seven or eight. Didn't even that then. one guy say he was a, like a ten? Yeah, there was a couple tens. That but didn't the girlfriend disagree? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. she, she said, yeah, she said, I heard, you not lied so to me fast. this morning is what she said yeah, to him. Yeah, there you go. So, like, so well, that's just, ten. That just simply says that, that most people think they're good people. Yeah. Mark, what were you going to say? An illustration you may have heard before is uh, imagine you've got to go take an incredible test, I don't know what subject, whatever subject you're not good at, let's just pick that subject. Uh, it could be calculus or chemistry or whatever it may be. Uh, and you, you go to take this test and it's just terrifying and you, you, you don't feel like you've prepared at all and you don't really know what you're doing and you should have worked on it. And, and the, the test is placed on your desk and you start looking at it. And it's one of those tests where it's not like you're going to get a few wrong. You're like, I'm not sure I'm going to get my name right on the top of the paper. Like it's one of those tests. And so you, you look over it and you're, you're trying and you're trying to put these equations together and nothing is making any sense. And you're like, I think I'm going to make an actual zero on this thing. This is terrible. And so you work on it, work on it. And the, the class time is almost over. And then uh, a student comes walking in, sits down next to you, takes your test off your uh, desk and puts it on his desk and then takes his test that he just finished Puts it on your desk. Now, I know this would be cheating. I understand, okay? With God's rules, things are different here. God allows this to happen. He actually chooses for this to happen. But he gives you the perfect test of his, and then he, he, takes, he takes your test. I think, did I get that right? Yeah, he takes your test, gives it back to you, and at the end, you hand in his paper, and he hands in yours. And he gets your F, and you get his 100. That's the doctrine of justification. I mean, on the cross, Jesus is getting your F. He's getting your failure. He's getting your sin. All of it, 100% of it, God treats Jesus like he lived your life, my life on the cross. So it's finished. It's over. All that wrath is gone, done forever, no condemnation. And God turns around and says, well, you have a perfect score. You don't have any sin in your life. Not only do you not have any sin, you obeyed all of my commandments because when Jesus never lied, you never lied. By imputation, you're, you're getting the credit. When he never had a prideful thought, you never had a prideful thought by imputation. And so God looks at the real righteousness of Jesus, counts it as really yours, takes your real sin, counts it as really his, and you each get the opposite of what you deserve. And that's the great exchange, my sin for his righteousness at the heart of justification. Yeah, and, and wouldn't you say, Greg, we need to talk about imputation. Oh, it's man. It's such a great part, and I know you love it. Would you help us through there? And I found it was interesting because... There's three places where imputation was, um, and this was on, uh, yeah, wherever it is. On somewhere page 319, Jerry. Yeah. 
And, and can you kind of take us through there? Yeah, I mean, Grudem gives a, a basic introduction on page 318 down at the bottom. He says, when we say that God imputes Christ's righteousness to us, it means that God thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us or regards it as belonging to us. Like Mark just said, he reckons it or counts it to our account. Now, and the reason why this, this matters um, is because if you're going to talk, especially to someone in the Roman Catholic Church, you know, we, we, I was listening to R.C. Sproul on this, and he, he gave some good warnings um, about this because we can, we can go wrong in terms of um, understanding different viewpoints on this. And if we don't understand opposing viewpoints, we're going to get really confused when we talk. And here's what I mean. You go to a Roman Catholic and say, well, you, you guys believe you're justified by works. They say, no, we believe faith's a part of it. Well, you don't believe you're just, you know, it's by grace. No, we believe grace too. The difference is what do they mean by grace and what do they mean by faith and what does that actually do? See, a Roman Catholic says grace is conferred to you at baptism. And so you've got this infusion of grace and righteousness that you have to improve upon for the rest of your life. If you're not careful, you can forfeit that through what they call mortal sins, and then you have to go through penance um, and, you know, kind of get forgiveness, and, you know, the priest will absolve you and all of this. But you can actually lose your justification if you're not careful, okay? So grace is infused into you. Righteousness is infused, and that's the Roman Catholic term. Yeah, you need grace. You can't do it apart from grace. And, yeah, you have to have faith, but not faith alone, not grace alone, imputation is, as Mark was saying, everything that Jesus did, it's now when God sees you in Christ, it's as though you did everything Jesus did. You didn't actually do it. Christ did it. But because you're connected to Christ by faith, everything he did is now yours. You see the difference? That's why imputation matters. It's just a, or you could say imputation versus impartation. God, you know, Roman Catholics say God imparts these things. Um, you have to get the difference here. And that's why it's not enough to say, yeah, we're justified by faith. Roman Catholics would say that. No, we're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. And the, in Christ alone is actually important in ways we might not think. Because, you know, the, in the, in the, when Martin, one of the things Martin Luther had a big issue with was the, the sale of indulgences. Um, and Tetzel was the guy he had a big dispute with. You know, you throw a coin in the coffer, and every time that coin in the coffer rings, you know, another soul from purgatory springs. Because you had some super saints um, in the Roman Catholic system, mentioned in Scripture, others as well, who did above and beyond what God required. Their extra righteousness is kind of stored in this treasury so that you can do various acts and you can buy from that treasury to help your loved ones who are stuck in this mid-place called purgatory. They're, they're, they're dead, but they're, they're not in hell. They're not in heaven. They got to be purged for a season to get the rest of their sin away. You can purchase um, years off of that for them because you can purchase from that treasury of the saints um, to go in and, and help them reduce their time of purging before they actually go into the presence of God. And, um, you know, what Luther understood is, no, actually, and John Owen, actually, I get this more from him, talked about there is this treasury of righteousness in Christ for every believer. Everything you need for God to accept you, you have in Christ. There's no extra outside treasury that other people have done that somehow you need their righteousness um, and it might help you or your loved ones just a little bit. No, everything, 
every bit of righteousness that you need, Christ has uh, reserved for you. And that's, you know, go back to what I said earlier, fully, truly God, truly man, not just for one believer, for anyone who believes. I feel like there was something else I was going to say, but I, I think I lost it. Somebody else. Now, this is an alien righteousness, as Luther said. Mm-hmm. It's an extra nose. It's something outside of us, but it's imputed to us. So when Christ looks at us, he looks at us as righteous. Yep, and that's good. And doesn't that go with Thursday? We were talking about how uh, in the last days it will be lovers of self. There isn't anything good in ourselves. We need to quit looking inside ourselves for good stuff and just look to Christ outside Absolutely. ourselves. Absolutely. Amen, Jerry. Imputation? Yeah, t- turn real quick to uh, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter uh, 18, just for a moment. Luke chapter 18. And um, important passage, I think, on this topic. Luke 18, starting verse 9, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now, do you see it? There, it's just crystal clear. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It's funny how those two things often go together. (laughs) If I think I'm righteous in my own deeds, then I'm going to look down on anyone who's not as good as I think I am. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. That's important. I thank you means he's depending on God for the grace to obey. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's above, you know, the Bible never commands fasting twice a week. Uh, so I mean, he's going in his mind above and beyond. This kind of goes back to your above righteousness. He thinks he's doing more than God requires. I mean, I'm just, I'm fasting more than I need to. I'm, I'm above what I need to be. And then uh, verse 13, but the tax collector living a life of sin, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And don't, don't stop. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when he, the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. And the, Jesus called to them and said, let the little children uh, come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The tax collector was receiving justification like a child. I have done nothing to earn this. I've done nothing but discredit myself. All I can do is plead for the mercy of God like a child just asking for a gift. The child doesn't come with a list of deeds. The child just asks. And this man, after a life of rebellion, just says, God, I have no righteousness. Please be propitious, literally. Show, remove your wrath from me. Save me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And he is justified on the spot. Now, his life is going to change after this, but he is immediately justified. The other guy, who's lived his entire life gritting his teeth and obeying, leaves the temple that day without a right standing with God, without justification. I think you mentioned something there that is huge. And unfortunately, I don't know why our translations don't do this. Because when it said, when the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner... You said it right. It's really be propitious. Um, it's the verb form for propitiation. 
which only happens in a sacrificial setting. Hmm. God looking on a sacrifice as a substitute and his wrath being satisfied on the substitute instead of on the sinner. I think this is the foundation for how Paul talks about the gospel right here, how he talks about it in Romans, how he talks about it in, um, in, in, his, let, in his other letters. Because e- even more, not only is it be propitious toward me, it's not a sinner, it's the sinner. It's a direct article. So this tax collector isn't just saying, yeah, I'm bad. He's like, I'm the worst. And you can hear how this would fuel Paul's own understanding when he says later, you know, I am the chief of sinners. God had mercy on me, the chief of sinners. And so it goes back to, you know, Romans 3, you know, again, through the redemption that's in Christ, we're justified. And then you read on and says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Um, and that's a sacrifice. That's like temple, um, sacrificial imagery, day of atonement, um, God's wrath satisfied by looking at the blood of the sacrifice in our place. Um, justification never takes place outside of a sacrifice for sins. That's exactly what's happening here. The Pharisee is to the point where it's like he might acknowledge that sacrifices are needed, but he doesn't seem to realize how desperately he needs that. Mm -mm. He's not acting like he needs a substitute. He's not acting like he needs something to take his sin because all he's doing is drawing attention to his own righteousness. And again, Mark, what you said I think is so big. The Pharisee recognized that he he couldn't be what he was apart from the grace of God, but his problem was is he looked at what God had worked in him and that's what he trusted in. He stopped looking outside to God and he started looking in. Look at what God has put in me. Man, I must be okay. And nowhere does the Bible ever tell us to look within. It always, as we've already said, tells us to look outside of ourselves. If we look within, we are hopelessly sunk. If we look outside ourselves to Christ, that's where our life and our hope is. Don't follow your heart. Am I hearing you no. say that? Papa. Oh, that's how, that's, that's how Luther found Christ. He looked outside of himself. He was looking at himself as a sinner and the system, which didn't work. Stalpin saw that, said, go to the Word. He studied the Word, and he found Christ. Yep. They, what's fascinating, if you, if you sneak to chapter 4, is how... Romans 4. Romans 4, sorry. Romans 4, 4 and 5, well, 3. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Would you, Mark, take us back to uh, Genesis 15 there and kind of remind us how this isn't just a New Testament thing. Yeah, this we, is all the way back to the Old Testament. We, we, just for the sake of time, we won't turn there. But in Genesis 15, this is early in Abraham's call with God. Uh, Abraham is making his journey to the promised land. And God says, you know, come out of your tent, look up, see all the stars of the heaven, as many as the stars of the heaven, so will your offspring be. Now, remember, people say, well, how did you get saved in the Old Testament? Like, you, you didn't know about a man named Jesus crucified on a Roman cross. You couldn't have known that kind of specificity thousands of years before Jesus. So how were they saved? And the answer is, well... The promise of the offspring is connected to Jesus because the ultimate offspring of Abraham is Jesus. Remember Galatians 3? God's made a promise to Abraham and to his offspring, not offsprings, plural, referring to many, but offspring, referring to one, the ultimate offspring, who is Christ. And so, yes, he's going to have as many as the stars of the heavens, but the ultimate offspring is Jesus. And so, Abraham is trusting that through his offspring, God would make the world right again. He would bring salvation. And that's what he's putting his faith in, in that moment. And what does God say? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. So that's, that's the first book of the Bible, and there it is. It's not Paul making this 
up. That's Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believes God's got an offspring coming, and ultimately through that offspring, he's going he's to bless the nations, bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. Salvation's coming through the offspring, and Abraham believes that the offspring's coming, and God says, you're righteous. You're righteous. Even though Abraham will sin multiple times after Genesis 15. In the very next chapter, he will sleep with Hagar, which is a massive sin. Uh, in chapter what? Chapter 20, whatever, 20, 21, he's going to sin again and lie about his wife. So he's not perfect in himself, but he's clearly been counted righteous because of faith in yeah. Christ. No, that's really good. And when you look at verse 4 and 5, now to the one who works, his wages, and that wages go with work here, are not counted as a gift but as his due. So grace and gift go together. Wages and work go together. We don't want to work. And verse 5 shows us, you're probably watching the Olympics, that you got to get qualified sometimes. I can track to get qualified for the finals. There's one thing now this qualifies in verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. To work disqualifies us. And that's the, uh, amazingly, that is what most people believe it takes to be justified, to do more works. Here it says, who does justification come to? The one who does not work, but believes. Final thoughts. Well, I mentioned that I had a conversation with a Muslim girl about, oh, seven years ago. And Kelly was there, and uh, she said, we asked, the question was to the Muslim girl, uh, uh, was how will you go to heaven? And she said, I'll, I'll never forget, I'll, I will go to heaven the same way I got into UGA, hard work. That's what she said. Uh, and I, I at least appreciated her honesty because that is an accurate representation of Islam and virtually every other belief system. And, and I, I had a great opportunity to explain that it's actually the opposite with, with Christianity, that it's not our hard work, it's Christ's hard work, and we trust in it. And so it was, you could just see very clearly the stark contrast between those two views. Yeah, it's good, Greg. I don't have time to get in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, there's so much, and, and we're probably going to need to uh, carry on to next week. Papa? I, I'm, I'm the same way uh, without extending beyond our appointed hour. Yeah. i just say one, I'm sorry, now I'm, I've added two comments, they've added none. How about that? So, sorry. But uh, j just one more thing, verse, verse 5 of Romans 4 is just such a great verse. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There's going to take a, I know most of us in this room, we're probably all believers, most of us, but maybe online, someone watching. I just want to say, if you're not a believer right now in Jesus, here's what God requires of you. You've got do nothing. You don't have to do anything. The one who does not work, but believes in a God who declares righteous the ungodly. That's all you've got to do. It's just you, you've been working and working and working. Just lay down the tools, stop working, turn away from your actions, turn to Christ, do nothing but trust in Him like a child. Just entrust yourself into your parents' arms. Just entrust yourself into your mother's arms. Just entrust yourself. Say, God, I can't do it. I am ungodly. I am sinful. I am wicked. I can't do it. Please be merciful to me, a sinner. Please save me and, and just see the Lord transform your, your whole life. God loves to justify the ungodly. Spurgeon said one time, are you not amazed that such a statement appears in the Bible? Him who justifies the ungodly? It's the scandal of the gospel is that anyone, no matter what, can be declared righteous in this moment by simple faith in the finished work of Jesus. So good. And ungodly is all of us. That's where we all start. Greg, could you pray? Yeah.
Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, Lord, for how clear your word is on this vital issue. Lord, please keep every one of us from trusting in ourselves that we are righteous. God, because we are not. Lord, help us take the law of God seriously. When we look at the law of God, we see a a perfection that we can never attain to. And Lord, help us to feel in the depths of who we are our own inability to keep your law, to give in our lives and our words and our deeds what you, uh, to you as you are worthy. God, we all fall short in the present tense. And Lord, bring us to that point that we might Stop looking at ourselves, stop looking within, and look without to Jesus, who obeyed you in every conceivable way, perfectly, without sin, from the heart. Lord, he did that to provide for us a righteousness that we desperately need but could never have any other way. So God, help us to look only to Jesus in his perfect work as our hope of acceptance with you. And that's the greatness of this promise that if we trust in him, you will credit his righteousness to us. Lord, may that be our hope. May that be our strength. May that be our joy. May that be our confidence upon which we live this thing we call the Christian life. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please come back next week. More on justification, I would guess. And um, maybe with some adoption snuck in there as well. Thanks.